So hopefully as we've been going through the, the life of Abraham, you've started to notice some of the, the big themes that, that keep coming up. And the last time I was preaching for you, I said that, that a helpful tip in studying the Bible is, is asking yourself if this passage reminds you of anything. And if I were to ask you again about this passage, then I'm really hoping that it's going to remind you about Abraham going down to Pharaoh in Genesis 12. Because this is almost a copy of that, right? Something terrible happens in the land. Last time it was a famine. This time it's Sodom and Gomorrah. Then Abraham moves. He's, he's afraid of a king and so tells Sarah to lie for him. Sarah is taken by the king. And then God ends up rescuing them. And they leave the scene with wealth that they didn't deserve. And so the last time that we were looking at this, we said that the big point was God's faithfulness in the face of our failures. So at that time, Abraham was unfaithful in the face of famine and Pharaoh. But in spite of that, God was faithful to him because of the promises that he had made. And we said that reminded us of 2 Timothy. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. And so today we're going to see how that is, is mirrored again. But we're going to focus on this added element of, of prayer that we get in this story. So if you like to take notes, we're going to be thinking about an unrighteous petitioner, an unrighteous mediator, but a gracious responder. Okay, an unrighteous petitioner, an unrighteous mediator, but finally a gracious responder. So let's go through the text and see how these three things can tell us more about God's character and specifically how that relates to prayer. We're going to look first at Abimelech, the unrighteous petitioner. Now, during that reading, it might seem on first glance that Abimelech is, is a pretty good guy. In fact, in some places, he seems to act like a righteous king should do. In verse 9, he understands that his sin as king affects his people. In verse 4, he's, he's concerned about the nation and not just himself. And in verse 16, he is, he's generous to Sarah, going out of his way to restore her reputation. So he could be forgiven for thinking that, that he is the good guy here. But, but far from justifying Abimelech, this is a theme that, that is worth noting down because it comes up in various places. And it's used to further condemn Abraham. Because what we should be expecting is that it's God's people who should look like the righteous king, not the pagan. And so the switching of roles is supposed to have this effect on us that makes us concerned that God's promises are in danger. We should be asking ourselves, why would God use Abraham when this king seems to be so much better? Will God continue to be faithful in the face of Abraham's failings, or will the promise switch to some other family? But there are other clues as well here we read closely enough to understand that Abimelech isn't the good guy he might seem. Firstly, we see in verse 17 that Abimelech already had a wife and female sex slaves, so this isn't some star-struck romantic who saw Sarah and acted out of, out of ignorance. This is someone going against God's order. He's seeing, desiring, taking, regardless of God's design. And under his own inclinations, God tells us in verse 7 that he would be condemned to death. And then there's his title, the king of Gerar, which 
readers would have known became the Philistines, the traditional enemy of Israel. So think of a historical film that's set before World War I and, and being introduced to a young, innocent-looking boy called Adolf Hitler. Immediately, we would look at that character and know that, that, that he's the bad guy, even if nothing has happened yet in the movie. And that's kind of the effect that Moses is going for in mentioning his title here. And then finally, there's what he does later on. Because Abimelech recognizes that there's, there's something powerful about Abraham. But rather than joining himself to Abraham's line, Abimelech just seeks to, to protect himself from him. One big theme in the Old Testament is blessings coming through being close to the line of promise and cursings, curses from being far from it. So think in our story back to, to Lot. He and Abraham had gone through loads together, but, but there was this conflict and that Lot separates himself from Abraham. He leaves the line of the seed of the woman and goes down into Sodom. And, and things don't go well from there. So later on, think to, to Rahab the prostitute. She, she isn't an Israelite, but she aligns herself with them by helping the spies and then is actually grafted in to the line of promise. So when Abimelech is told by God that, that this man is a, a prophet, that he can mediate for him before God, does he, does he seek to keep him close? Does he try and integrate with him, join his family to him? Well, the best he does is just try to get agreement in chapter 21 that, that Abraham would be kind to him. Just like the, the Gibeonites who will trick Israel later on, he doesn't want to join Abraham, doesn't want to be part of God's people. He just wants left alone. He doesn't want to hurt God's people, but, but he doesn't want to join them. So he's, he's nice. Just nice. I know so many people who are nice, are so kind, and it's so easy to think that if they only knew Jesus, then they would just be, just be perfect. Like, like they're almost there, almost righteous. If we could just sprinkle a little bit of church on them, then they'd be a model Christian. But the truth is that even those that, that appear to be righteous, appear to be good enough, just, just aren't. Because our standard for goodness is not on the same planet as God's standard. And our disgust at sin, at denying God's lordship over our lives, is nothing in comparison to God's disgust at it. So don't be fooled into thinking that Abimelech is, is near the kingdom. And don't be fooled into thinking that that really nice person who denies Christ is any less in danger of damnation than the drug dealer or the people traffic, trafficker or the abortionist. Because no one needs just a little bit of Jesus. No one needs just a little bit of self-improvement. Everyone needs to be saved by Jesus, to, to die to themselves and to cling to him. Abimelech might look nice, but he is the unrighteous petitioner here because outside of the people of God, everyone is unrighteous. No one is righteous, no, not one, except those who have received a righteousness not of their own. And so just like you, just like me, just like all of us before God saved us and cleaned us, Abimelech approaches God as an unrighteous 
petitioner, as a guilty man standing before a judge. He doesn't deserve forgiveness. He doesn't deserve a hearing. And he can't twist God's arm into forgiving him or blessing him. He is utterly dependent upon God's response to him. I was speaking with some very wise people this week who reminded me that that we can so often turn a gift that God's given us into a right that we feel we deserve where we can take what God gives us as as a wage we have earned rather than a gift to joyfully receive. And I'll confess with you here that that too often I I come to God with a sense that he should hear me. That he needs to hear me rather than a joyous disbelief that he does because family, he, he hears us. He listens to us. Regardless of what you've done, you, you have the privilege of walking into the throne of heaven, not having to, to tidy yourself up first, not having to jump through any hoops. What a gift that is. And so when you come to pray next, just, just slow down a second and remember that, that what you're about to do is a gift of grace. That, that You don't deserve this but that still you can come. That's what we learn from Abimelech, the, the unrighteous petitioner. Let, let's move on to our next character, Abraham. So just to reiterate where we are in this narrative, God told Abraham that the child of the blessing was, about to come, was going to come in about a year. Then we had this scene with, with Sodom and Gomorrah where, where Lot is rescued. But we sort of see Abraham looking over the city in disgust. And then Abraham moves to this region where Abimelech is ruling. So Abraham has been held up as a mediator, as as someone who stands between God and man, who, who intercedes for the people and through whom God blesses the people. And, and this all has loads of messianic overtones. He is acting like the hero again. But then something really strange happens that tells us about what sort of mediator Abraham actually is. So Abraham had received the promise that his son would come in about a year at at, at Mamre. And then we get this phrase, where he stood before the Lord. And that's repeated after Lot comes out of Sodom where we read this. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's almost like he's, he's standing there with God, like Adam did in the garden, like, like we were made to do, and then just turns away. Chapter 20, our reading today, starts with him leaving the spot where he stood before the Lord. This is like ominous music in a, in a movie when, when someone is looking around an abandoned house. It, it should prime us to think, Abraham, what are you doing You're supposed to stand before the Lord for us. And just like in the famine, he he doesn't seem to trust the Lord. He doesn't seem to think that this spot is a good one. He wants to leave this place that looks so awful to him. And so he leaves again, leaving a place of safety, a place where he stood before the Lord to go into the land of Abimelech. And this is just so strange. 
Later in verse 15 and into chapter 21, we see that Abraham is, is, is content to live in the land of Abimelech. But he judges the place where he stood before the Lord to be insufficient in some way. Now, a mediator stands between God and the, and the people, and, and Abraham did it at, at Sodom for Lot. But now it seems that, that Abraham doesn't want to stand before the Lord. What kind of mediator acts like that? Now, that's the first thing, where he goes. But the, but the second is, is who goes with him. So you, you could read this and maybe be forgiven for thinking that, that Abra, it's Abraham and Sarah here against the world. But remember, in Genesis 14, he, he's got over 300 trained men with him. He's already got so much wealth and, and animals that he's had to split from Lot. This, this isn't a, a small caravan of people. But even with all that, he seems fearful. He goes back to the lie from before, the, the lie that had put Sarah and the line of promise in so much danger. And remember the timings for this as well. In a year the child of promise would arrive. Sarah might very well have been pregnant at this very moment. And so again, so often in the life of Abraham, we need to see this and think the promises of God are in danger. And with that, we should think that, that Abraham, through his unfaithfulness, is the one who has put them there. Even with all his men, Abraham puts Sarah in danger to protect himself. The righteous husband dies for his wife, puts her needs before his own. But what we see here is that Abraham uses her as a shield. So it doesn't look good, but there's more. Look at verse 9. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? What have you done? Now think of yourselves, does that sound familiar? It should do, because these are the words that God says to Adam after the fall, that God says to Cain after he killed Abel, what have you done? It is the righteous one asking the sinner. And if we were thinking about this scene, it, it should be Abraham, shouldn't it? The, the, the one in the line of the seed of the woman who should be asking the seed of the serpent here, what have you done? And yet Abraham is acting like the roles have been reversed. Rather than being put forward as the righteous one here, we are seeing his unrighteousness. Now, if you're not convinced of that, then, then just see how he is shown to be a new Adam. Because what does he do in verse 13? Well, he blames God. God caused me to wander. But did he? No. Abraham left. But, but Abraham, like Adam, he, he passes the blame. Another man failing at the commission that God had given him. Not mediating blessing here, but responsible for a curse. There's no doubt that, that Abraham is held up as a, as a mediator, but also no doubt that he is an unrighteous one. And, and so what we are left with looking in the life of Abraham is, is following him, is this roller coaster journey of faith. Sometimes we think that, that faith is just this upwards progress as we, as we get better at this thing, doesn't it? Like an, an upwards graph. 
But with Abraham, we see the reality that, that some of the biggest highs in our spiritual lives can be quickly followed with astounding lows. We've just seen Abraham get the promise. We've seen him mediate between God and man, being held up as this priestly figure. And then this. This has to be the low point in his life. Cardly putting the promises of God in danger, being placed in the mold of the seed of the serpent. And yet, for us, far from just being discouraged at our hero here, I want to say that this story should give us reason to rejoice. Because if anything is clear, is that Abraham is not counted righteous because he is so good. He's not a high bar that we have to reach here. Some of us think that when we become a Christian, that that we are infused with grace. So from that moment on, we are going to be morally perfect. And then when we aren't, we question, did we ever receive that grace at all? Why do I struggle with this sin? Why is it still in my life? Does that sound familiar? Why aren't I better at this by now? We've all thought that. Well, the reason is because we are still human. We we haven't been infused by like grace, like like we've received some superpower from a radioactive spider, or, or our nature hasn't changed. So we're going to mess up. Yes, we hope to get better and to do it less. But no one expects an older Christian to be perfect. Abraham was was all over the map. And yet he is listed as a hero of the faith. Why? Not because he was infused with righteousness, but because he was covered by God's righteousness. He was still a sinner, but he was clothed in God's goodness. Which means that when we fail, we fail because we are humans. But when God looks at us, who are in Christ, he sees his son's perfect righteousness covering us. And Christian, for you, that should be awesome news. Because it means that no matter how you feel on the inside, no matter how much you beat yourself up, no matter how much you compare yourself to someone else, it's not your righteousness that counts. It's God's. And it's perfect. And he has given it to you. when we in the pastoral team go to visit someone on their deathbed, so often they say the same thing. I'm I'm not good enough. And in that moment, I praise the Lord that we can say that, that even though that might be true, God's grace is big enough for them. So sinner, we aren't wagging the finger and telling you to behave. We are rejoicing that the Lord offers to us and saying that the offer is open to you as well, that we are just one beggar telling another where there is bread. Because look at what God does in these verses. This is God being the gracious responder. Because although Abraham is at his lowest here, what does God do? Verse 6, he protects the line of the seed of the woman. He protects his promise and doesn't allow Sarah to be touched. In verse 7, he returns her to Abraham, restoring the couple which the seed, through which the seed would come. And he calls Abraham a prophet. 
And finally, in verse 17, he answers Abraham's prayer. Is this what Abraham deserves? No. Far from it. And yet God's response to his people is one of mercy and of grace. Maybe your view of God is that there's a big guy upstairs just waiting to squish you. Always thinking that there is an angry God just waiting for an opportunity to to smite. And yes, we say that God's wrath is real. But God's wrath is also holy. And it's just. And for those of us who are in Christ, that wrath has already been poured out on Christ. Every last drop. And so God's disposition towards us is, is not one of anger, but of grace. In Isaiah, God says of the Messiah, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Our weakness isn't something that God wants to, to punish or to, to break. It's something that he wants to heal And so he doesn't snuff out a spark that is producing lots of smoke with it. He he, he kindles it. He he deals gently with it. And over time, he coaxes it into a roaring fire. And maybe for some of us, that fire will only be seen in glory. But trust him, my family, it will be seen. God is the gracious responder to his people. And all of that brings us to this point to this one point to take away. Prayer is not about the goodness of the one praying, but about the one that they pray to. Abimelech wasn't a righteous petitioner. He didn't deserve to get his prayers answered. Abraham wasn't a righteous mediator. He didn't deserve to be heard by God. And yet none of that mattered because God is a gracious responder. Maybe you're hearing this message and thinking that, you know, I just can't pray. God wouldn't hear you, wouldn't give you the audience, maybe something you've done or maybe your heart you just feel isn't right. And it's, it's really easy to think that. It's easy to focus down upon ourselves and think, who am I that God is worthy of him, that, that the Lord of the universe would even care about me? And yet... God's faithfulness in the face of our failings means that prayer isn't about us. We don't deserve to be heard. And yet we are. We can come and we can pray because the God we pray to doesn't reject us because of our weaknesses. He doesn't despise us because of our inability to compare to other people. Our God delights in our prayers Our God inclines his ear to to hear us like a father eager to hear from his child. In Isaiah 55, the Lord tells us to to seek him. He tells everyone who thirsts to come for the unrighteous to return to him because he will abundantly pardon because his ways are not our ways. So because of who he is, not because of that we deserve it, but because of who God is. He delights in pardoning the unrighteous person who comes to him. And grace upon grace, when we come to him now, we don't come through an unrighteous mediator. We come through Christ. 
the fully righteous mediator who brings us to the Father. We can look to the cross and see just what God did to bring us close. You might look at your sin and think that it's, it's like a mountain, and it may well be. But look to the cross and see that God has overcome it. That his grace is sufficient for you, more than sufficient, that it is abundant. It is an overflowing cup so that, that, that even your sin, even your marital strife, even your addiction, even your doubt or sexual sin or greed or hypocrisy or hardness of heart, you can come to God and he will hear you. What difference would it make to your life if you knew that God will hear you and that he will respond graciously to you? If you're here today and you don't know, know him, then I'm hoping this should reassure you to take the first step to, to come to him and to ask for forgiveness. If you do know him, but your heart has grown cold, well, then this should give you confidence that, that he has not rejected you, that even that the worst of prodigals is greeted with rejoicing. But for all of us, the difference that it should make is that it should bring us close to rejoice in worship, to remind ourselves of the gospel and all that Christ has done for us.